Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Welcome to Eloquentia perfecta ex machina, a podcast series devoted to the teaching of rhetoric and composition with and through a range of media, and focusing on the writing program at St. Louis University. On this podcast, we interview instructors about how and why they use multimodal approaches, and we have instructors interview other instructors about the nuts and bolts of particular tools and assignments. On this episode, Matt Holder sits down with Dr. Toby Bennis to discuss her use of the Reacting to the Past curriculum in her English 1900 course. During part one of this interview, Dr. Bennis describes her inspiration for choosing the method and presents an overview of the specific game played by her students, including the typical prep, scaffolding, and time requirements, and she provides examples of the ways in which her students embrace the role-playing experience. Hey, this is Matt Holder. I'm here to talk to Toby Bennis today for Eloquentia Perfecta Ex Machina about her use of the reacting to the past pedagogy in her 1500 class. Before we get into that, though, I just wanted to read a brief paragraph from the, the website itself, which describes kind of in good detail exactly what the game is about for those that might not be aware. So reacting to the past consists of elaborate games set in the past in which students are assigned roles informed by classic text in the history of ideas. Class sessions are run entirely by students. Instructors advise and guide students and grade their oral and written work. It seeks to draw students into the past, promote engagement with big ideas, and improve intellectual and academic skills. Reacting roles, unlike those in a play, do not have a fixed script and outcome. So while students will be obliged to adhere to the philosophical and intellectual beliefs of the historical figures they've been assigned to play, they must devise their own means of expressing those ideas persuasively in papers, speeches, or other public presentations. And students must also pursue a course of action they think will help them win the game. All right, so hey, Toby, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. All right, so just to begin, I was interested in how you heard about this pedagogy and this curriculum and what intrigued you about it specifically? I attended a forum that the Reinhardt Center put on that showcased this particular approach because other instructors at SLU have used reacting to the past games in various courses and I was curious because I wanted to teach a class at some point on counterfactual narratives. Okay. So the man in the high castle, but there's a whole, actually there's a whole history of um, counterfactual narratives. And I was really interested in that. And I thought that playing one of these games in the course would help students understand how history can go in very different ways depending on personalities and situations. So that's why I went to the forum. But then I ended up, when I realized I was going to be teaching 1900, I thought, well, I will try it in 1900 and see what happens. Yeah, really interesting. So um, so there are all types of games, right? There are, like, published games, and then there are various games, like, in development stages or whatever. So which one did you use, and why did you choose that? And then could you just walk us through um, the central conflict of the game and the setup, um, such as the factions, what texts are used, um, and so on? I was assigned to teach a section of 1900 that was the conflict, social justice, and rhetoric topic. So I decided to focus the course around the question of rights and the discourse of rights, political rights specifically. So in looking at the menu of games, I decided that the French Revolution game would be a good 
starting place for that discussion in the course because that's when our contemporary idea of rights really emerges in politics and, and social discussion. Okay. So that's what I did. I picked the French Revolution game. Um, and the central conflict is a debate in the National Assembly in France in 1791 over what's going to go into the new constitution. This is after the revolution has already gotten underway, and there are four different groups that you divide the class into. There are the conservatives, who are the royalists. There are the kind of moderates, the fiancés. There are the Jacobins, who are the radicals. There's the indeterminates, who can go either way, and right. part of the game is persuading those people to go either way. And then there's the crowd, which doesn't have a vote in the assembly, but has other powers. Right, they can, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that's useful to point out because, um, so a lot of the games are broken down according to that model. Like, they all center around some debates. There are factions, you have one pro this, and then one pro the other side, and then a moderate, and then, yeah, various intermediary characters. Um, so, as far as intermediaries, did you have any actual historical figures that people were playing? They were all historical figures. Okay, so they were all... So, there was, you know, King Louis the Sixteenth was a, was a figure, mm. Lafayette was a figure, um, uh, a Jacobin cleric, Regois, was an actual character in the game. Danton was a member of the crowd, and he was a great orator in the revolution before he got guillotined. Oh. Well, noblest thoughts of that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, and so, and also another real central part of these games is that they all are really intensely based in kind of text of the period. So, part you know, if you get the game book, probably more than half of it is usually like the primary text. So, which texts were being used for the the French Revolution game? Um, the primary texts, which you're right, were almost all in the game book, were influential snippets of political philosophy, mostly from the 18th century, that the revolutionaries themselves would have read and been familiar with. So Voltaire, Montesquieu, um, Rousseau, and then Edmund Burke kind of representing the conservative side. So the game is kind of set up as a war of ideas between Rousseau and Edmund Burke, who embodies the conservatives. And these exa the excerpts in the game book are very short, which is good. <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> Because this yeah. can be heavy going for yes, students. Yes, I know. I remember when I was an undergrad, I played the Galileo game, where you're, you're, you're the trial of Galileo. And they have some snippets from Aristotle, because... Um, so much of that is about Aristotelian conceptions of the universe and the Copernican models. And yeah, but the Aristotelian stuff, it was in short bursts because that stuff gets really intense. Um, and especially with undergrads, I imagine it could be, <laughs> doesn't take long for them to lose interest in some of that stuff, um, which is interesting. So that's something I wanted to ask about too was, um, so how do you handle teaching? So this is an intensely historically grounded experience that you're asking students to engage in, but you're doing it in a general kind of first year composition class. So how do you, um, so a lot of them probably don't come to this with an intense background knowledge on the French Revolution. I mean, maybe they do. Um, so, but so how much, and maybe this uh, could talk about the time requirements too, how much prep goes into kind of getting them prepared to make that shift? to this really intense historical background? 
Well, I'll say that before the semester even started, I sent the whole class an email. And I said, yes. this is not <laughs> going to be what you may have heard from your friends. English 1900 is like. Right. Um, we're going to be doing a role-playing game, and there's going to be about a three-week setup for scaffolding yeah. to prepare you for the central ideas. Um, and if this, you know, you don't have to be an expert on the revolution, but if this kind of approach doesn't seem something that would appeal to you, you are free <laughs> to find another section. Right. So, um, so I tried to warn them. And then within the context of the game, as you know, the book does a really good job of the game book of kind of establishing the historical context in a readable way. Right, yeah. We went over all that material. Um, there's also a lot of supporting materials that instructors are given if you decide to sign up and play one of the games. There's a, an instructor's guide, which pretty much walks you through everything. Okay. Um, there are bulletins, handouts that you give out at various points in the game um, that kind of alert students to, at this point in history, this was happening, right. um, which they may or may not take in. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's a, it's a mixed bag. I mean, in retrospect, I probably would have picked a different game, <laughs> but that's all right. Was it because the ideas were so maybe difficult to grasp? or? Uh... I just think, yeah, it was, I mean, I tried to, use the game as a sort of setup for the second part of the course because we're talking now about rights today. Mm -hmm. So the right to vote, the right to housing, the right to health care. But I'm not sure that they kind of have put together that the game and what we're talking about now are related. Right. I think something like um, there's a, a game on creating the 97, no, the 1991 USDA food pyramid. Okay. Um, and the congressional hearings surrounding the creation of that those guidelines that I think what they would be able to relate to because yeah. everybody grows up in primary school learning about food and mm -hmm. nutrition through the food pyramid, which it turns out was a very complicated thing to construct. Yeah. So. A little more relatable, perhaps. <laughs> so you said you did three weeks of scaffolding? like. Yeah. Uh, so then how long did the game itself take you? And are you doing a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or a Tuesday, Thursday course? I'm doing a Tuesday, Thursday. I suppose you could try to do it Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I think that might be difficult, but you could probably pull it off. So I did. I was a Tuesday, Thursday schedule. So in my case, it was three weeks of reading and walking them through the basics of the texts. And then the game itself takes three weeks on Tuesday, Thursday, and I suppose Monday, Wednesday, Friday as well. Um, and so every class meeting is a new session of the French National Assembly. Right, um, yeah. And there's an agenda with a specific piece of legislation that they're considering that day. There's a person who's the president of the assembly who tries to keep order. So it was that was about three more, three more weeks, and then there was a postmortem. So it really went through midterm. Okay. All right. Uh, so did you feel like that was enough time or did you wish maybe you had done more time or? I think it was enough time for what we were doing. Um, as I said, I think, I don't know, I'd have to, I, I do want to teach with this method again because I found it so interesting and I think the students were engaged in a way they wouldn't have been. But I need to think about the game choice and how to relate it to the 1900 syllabus. That was a little tricky. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So speaking of students, um, could you tell me about their reaction maybe initially leading up to the game and then during the game itself? Um, how did they handle being asked to kind of do this role-playing um, in a 1900 class? Um, part of the challenge in teaching with this method is that you have to assign roles. Right, yeah. And there's a debate within the community that uses this approach as to whether you should just do it randomly mm -hmm. or whether you should try to match what you think the student's personality is yeah. to certain kinds of characters. Mm -hmm. So I tried to sort of match them together, um, which worked better in some cases than others. <coughs> so um, I tried to... But to some extent, I have to say, it's just, it's a guess. Yeah. So I, I assigned one student, Danton, and Danton has to be a rabble rouser. Right. Danton has to be fine with interrupting people and, um, you know, rioting on occasion. So, and I kind of just hoped that it worked out. And in, in the end, the student that I picked to play Danton was terrific. Whereas the person I picked to play Lafayette was n less successful, right. I would say. So some of them did better than others. Although I think in the end, they all, or most of them, were really engaged. Okay. So that was pleasing. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, it can, because some roles carry, you know, so much more weight than others. And so, and because the overall success is so dependent on the student's involvement. Um, every time I've done it, it's always been the teacher has kind of tried to match, like, you know, the roles with someone they think will do that well. Like, especially because there's normally like a moderator position, right? Someone who's in charge of, all right, so on today's agenda, we're going to have, we're going to hear from this side and then we're going to hear from this side. And, you know, so you'd want that to go to someone who is very organized and, uh, I gave that to somebody who's in the ROTC. Oh, very nice. Yeah, there you <laughs> and go. she actually was pretty good. Yeah. So and you you got to keep you know the crowd under control you know because yeah back there causing a ruckus. Um, okay, so so that's kind of the overview of the game. But I want to shift now to maybe talk about so English nineteen hundred right is um, a first year composition course, and here at SLU we place a lot of emphasis on rhetoric itself and. Um, so I wanted to talk about what the game is asking them to do um, as far as assignments go, what those look like, and the kind of skills maybe that are being um, encouraged through the game. Well, I tried to map the game assignments onto the Disoy Logoi right. assignments. Mm -hmm. So uh, over the course of the game, each character had to make one significant speech. Um, that was sort of the oral part. And then they also were supposed to talk in every class session. Right. And then for the written material, um, I we had gone through the whole purpose audience, context, text breakdown that the changing writing right. book mm -hmm. gives you. So I, for each week, they had to write a two-and-a-half-page paper from the point view of their character addressing a specific, a specific issue that we were discussing um, and keeping in mind that PACT right. model. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so those three assignments together constituted the Disoy Logoi assignment. 
Um, and then the speech and their oral participation obviously counted towards their oral participation for the course. So I think it was it was actually really helpful in that it gave them a very clear um, rhetorical context right. with yeah. the, within which they were speaking. And that you, so it avoided that problem of, I don't really know who I'm talking yeah. to, and I don't really know why I'm saying this. Mm-hmm. I guess I got an assignment, and that's why I'm saying yeah. it. You know, they were really talking to each other in a very specific moment in history, and they were trying to win people over. And if they didn't, they lost the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... I think, could you talk maybe a little bit more about what the kind of competitive aspect of the game does for students, um, I guess either positively or negatively, but how do you see that playing out as opposed to, you know, a traditional lecture model classroom where there's really not any kind of competitive edge? Well, this is another, um, I think, source of variation within people who use this approach. (laughs) Some people actually give students credit if they win the game, and there Mm -hmm. are specific victory objectives for every character. Some people are more interested in how they perform on different assignments. So I did, at the end, say who I thought won the game in Mm -hmm. terms of each character, but ultimately I placed more emphasis on the execution of the speaking and the writing components. Right. Um, some of them responded well to the to the competitive aspect. I mean, in the last class, the you know there was a, a a huge riot, and as a result of a die roll, which is how some of the outcomes are decided, um, the crowd got to execute six people. Oh, very nice. Six delegates, <laughs> and so I walked up to them and I said, "So, who are you going to execute?" And so they tossed six people out of the game, <laughs> and they went to the back of the room. There you go. So, I mean, you know, they, it was interesting to see how those dynamics played out. Yeah, very interesting. That's, I mean, that's one of the fun things about the games, right, is that um, there's a possibility for it to not go the way that, um, you know, actual history played out. I remember when I did the Galileo game, like, he got off. He wasn't even accused of any type of heresy. And I was one of the conservative cardinals, you know, desperate to see the guy burn, and uh, I was very upset, you know. Uh, yeah, they can get pretty <laughs> upset. I think the, yeah, the, because when when the mass executions happened, it basically eliminated all of the moderates and the conservatives, and some of those people were like, what, what do I do now, right? Yeah. So. Nothing. You're dead. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, democracy goes that way, I suppose. It does. <laughs> If you'd like to get involved in this podcast series, to share an assignment or tool, or even to pitch an interview, please contact me, Nathaniel Rivers, at nathaniel.rivers at slu.edu. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina.